Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, a section that we have been in for a number of weeks now, and one that has been, for many students of the Bible, a quandary. It's a section that has been a source of much debate and anxiety and division in the church for centuries, and all of it revolving around this teaching by the Apostle Paul about God electing or choosing some for salvation and not others. And in a society especially like ours, which emphasizes over and over again individual rights and self-determination, a passage like this is downright repugnant for some people. This kind of concept is, at a very basic level, fundamentally repulsive. We are in a society where people are led or taught or raised to believe negatively that they have basic rights not to be subjected to anyone they don't want to be subjected to and on a positive side that they shouldn't be, or I should say that they should be guaranteed the same benefits that are afforded to other people. So this... um, framework by which we understand justice and fairness when applied to this passage of Scripture seems to be at odds. We encounter a passage like this that says that God determines to save some and at the same time to pass over others for salvation and it's deeply disturbing for people. It's a troubling passage. We've seen the basics of where all this comes from when Paul began in verse 6 of chapter 9, defending this basic idea in light of the fact that so many of his fellow Jews didn't believe in his own day. He was defending the very basic notion that all the promises from the Old Testament that God had made concerning the Jews had not failed, that the word of God hadn't failed, that it still was true. Because God, as Paul begins to show, established a pattern from the very beginning of time, from the very beginning of Scripture and the the story of of Israel anyway, he, he established a pattern of carrying his promise to the Jews only through a select few within the nation of Israel. And Paul traces that from Abraham, who of course was the founding father of Israel, through his son Isaac, and then from Isaac to his son Jacob, and he's demonstrating how God established a relationship with certain descendants of Abraham, certain Jews, and not with others. And he did so, as Paul has been showing us, not on the basis of natural birth, not on the basis of their own effort but simply on the basis of supernatural election. God chose some, and He didn't choose others. And front and center in this whole demonstration is the story of Jacob and Esau, who, Paul tells us, that though they were not yet born, and though they had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue or might stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, 
Rebecca, their mother, was told the older will serve the younger. In other words, this was before any of them had been ever born in the world, before they'd ever demonstrated their character, before they'd ever made a choice at all. God made a choice. That's the emphasis. And later on, as Paul quotes from the book of Malachi, God declares that the reason that these two individuals and eventually the nations that came from them, the reason why they are the way they are is because, as Paul says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. God decided to love one and to hate the other. The message of Paul here is a message that you find throughout all of Scripture. That salvation is only from the Lord. That it doesn't depend on human effort and it doesn't even depend on human will. Or as John writes in John 1.12, To all who receive Him, who believe in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we are, those of us who receive Jesus Christ, we are born again, we are born in Him, not of our own will, but of His will. Or James 1.18, of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we would be a kind of first fruits of His creation. Or Jesus put it as strongly as anyone, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws Him, and then I will raise Him up on the last day. And so you see this, this idea, this doctrine just repeated again and again through the pages of Scripture. Salvation is based entirely on the initiative of the Lord and His will. And when He chooses or elects or exercises His will, none can resist it. We, we respond as, a, as a, a consequence of the exertion of His grace and His sovereignty. We do respond. We respond with individual, individual faith, I should say, a response of our own will. But according to the Scripture, it is an enabled will. It is a will that previously had been blind and dead and unresponsive because of the effects of sin. But God first enables us to respond and then... We do, so that the Scripture declares we love because He first loved us. Or as Jesus says to His disciples, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. So Paul is emphasizing these same things here. And as I said, this idea is so repugnant to a whole host of people who like to celebrate their individual freedom, and there have been As a consequence of that, so many attempts to dismiss not only those other passages, but to to dismiss what Paul says so plainly right here. But I've tried, as we've seen in weeks past, to address some of those objections, at least as they relate to the verses we've covered so far, to demonstrate why those arguments clearly don't stand. But definitely the best defense of our basic understanding of everything Paul's saying here is his own. It is the defense that he gives. Because after he makes all of this argument in verses 6 through 13, he goes on to pose a a few questions and then to answer those questions. 
And they are questions or they're objections that he knows are arising in people's minds whenever they hear him make these kinds of statements or even quote these kinds of scriptures. In other words, Paul understands the objections that are coming. He's no doubt encountered them in his own preaching. He has no doubt grappled with them in his own heart. He understands them and because he understands uh, what is going through their minds, he is prepared to answer it. He understands it because he knows exactly what he's just said. He understands it because he knows the consequence of the claims he just made. And he knows that for many he must address these kinds of serious questions. Serious questions really related to the overall issue of fairness. I mean, if all this is true, if God chooses some and doesn't choose others, I mean, is that even fair? Is it even just of God to do such a thing? And if it, if it is fair, or who, I guess you'd say even unrelated to the fairness, if that's the case, then why, why do we even go on preaching? Why do we even go on urging people to believe? Why? Do we even have hope in the future? If we don't really control anything, why do we even bother worshiping this God or calling people to worship Him when He is so apparently arbitrary and, and, and uh, capricious, they would say, in this kinds of actions? All of this really driven by this underlying objection to the doctrine of election. Concerning whether or not it's fair. Is it just? For so many people, the idea that God intentionally chooses some and intentionally passes over others seems like a most fundamental breach of justice. It makes God unjust. The interesting thing is that Paul doesn't just anticipate the objection and voice it himself. And he he answers the objection, not by backing down, not by hedging what he's just said, not by trying to uh, create some counterbalance to what he just said. Instead, he takes what he's told us so far and he reaffirms it in stronger terms. He moves from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, continuing to trace his pathway, if you will, through the redemptive history of Israel, coming now to Moses and continuing to show the continuity of this principle that God, if he was working within Israel, if he works in the hearts of anyone, he does so simply on the basis of his divine election. Listen to the way that he frames these objections and the way he answers them. If you can just see there in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, 
For this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me this way? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor, uh, honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? Now you can hear just reading through that little section of Scripture, you can hear the two main questions that Paul raises, the two main objections that he highlights when it comes to this doctrine of election. First of all, is there injustice with God? And then secondly, if no one can resist His will, then how can He still find fault when they don't believe in Him? I mean, those are objections that we recognize because they're objections that we've heard There are objections that have risen in our own hearts. First of all, is this whole thing fair? And then second of all, if this is the way it is, then why does God even condemn some people that He hasn't given the ability to to believe? If you've asked those questions in the past, if you have those questions in your heart right now, this is the section for you. This is the passage of Scripture for you. If you've asked whether the doctrine of election makes God appear evil or hateful or unfair, if you've asked whether or not it is right of God to condemn people when He only chooses some for salvation, if you've asked whether or not any of this stuff really uh, uh, matters, or I should say, if whether or not we respond to it and how we respond to it really matters, If any of those kinds of things have come up in your mind, then what Paul is saying to us here and the answers that he's going to give us bring us right to the point of not only mature understanding, but of worship. And he does all of this, really, by attacking the very heart of the assumptions behind those questions. Assumptions about ourselves and assumptions about God He answers the questions, in other words, by talking about God's very nature and by talking about His overall plan in redemption. And of course, He answers it the way He has answered everything else by Scripture. He isn't just making these things up. He's demonstrating that this is the overwhelming message from book to book as you move all the way through the pages of Scripture. Now, in answer to His first question... Is there any injustice with God? We can take note, first of all, that his answer is this. God's election must be understood. If it's going to be understood, God's election must be understood in light of the overall nature of God and of man. If God's election is going to be understood, it must be understood in light of God. His nature and the nature of man. Or we could just say in light of who He is. 
This is Paul's answer, although, of course, his short answer there, you know, is there any injustice with God? By no means, absolutely not. That's insane, that's out of the question. He, he gives that sort of uh, burst of um, repulsion, but then he doesn't just leave it at that. He expands on that. He tells us why he answers so strongly. As I said, beginning with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, now sweeping sweeping forward all the way to Moses and citing scripture, he says, for it says, or he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then Paul draws the conclusion from this passage, reasserting what he's already said about Jacob and Esau, so then it doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. He's quoting here from a well-known passage, certainly to the Jews of his day and even for us, he's quoting from that passage having to do with the golden calf. You, you, you really can't understand the richness of the quotation without understanding the backdrop of what was going on when it was given. Israel, as you may know, probably know, had been in bondage. They had been in bondage in Egypt, laboring under oppressive circumstances. And the Lord visits Moses and calls Moses to go and call his people out of bondage. He sends them and delivers them with a mighty arm with ten magnificent plagues. And having arrested the attention of Pharaoh and humbled the nation of Egypt, he brings Israel out through mighty acts, through a Passover Uh, in which the firstborn are killed within Egypt, except the firstborn of Israel who observed the Passover. He brings them out by mightily uh, 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 parting the Red Sea. He brings them through all of this and then brings them out into the desert three months to the foot of Mount Sinai, providing for them along the way, supernaturally, miraculously, through the giving of manna, And promises to bring them all the way to a land that had been given to Abraham, their father, and all of his descendants. But before he did that, God wanted to make a a covenant with them. In addition to the covenant he made with Abraham, uh, a binding covenant on them, which was, I, I guess you could say, combined with stipulations, combined with rules, combined with what we know as the law. He brings them to Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. He declares, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God now has delivered them. He's brought them out of Egypt. He's brought them into this place and now he, he, he pulls them aside and he says, now you are going to be a special people to me. Unlike anybody else on the face of the earth, I'm going to make you my special possession, my royal priesthood, a holy nation. He confirms that, not only with those words, but by coming down, we're told, in a cloud that rested on the mountain that was right in front of them, and God speaks to the people. 
directly from the crowd, so, uh, the cloud, so much so that they trembled and quaked when they heard the voice of the Lord. And in the next chapter, Exodus 20, verse 22, God tells Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I talked with you from heaven. You shall therefore not make gods of silver to be with me, you, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. In other words, this is a really unique thing. I spoke with you. I haven't done that with any other people. I revealed myself to you in one of the most unique ways that I've ever done. They heard his voice on uh, atop Mount Sinai and they were terrified. And yet it was an overwhelming sign, not only of God's reality and existence, but of his, of his selection of them. But also, it presents an inexcusable scenario if they ever turn back from him and go out and make for themselves idols, gods of gold and silver. Now, God not only visited them this way, but he tells them in, verse, in chapter 24 and then later after that, he tells them, not only have I spoken to you, but I want you to build a tabernacle. I want you to build a, a holy place, a, a structure that will be right in the middle of your camp. And in that tabernacle, I am going to descend and I'm going to dwell there. And from that place, I will speak with you. In other words, this wasn't a one-time event. God was telling them, you're going to be my special people, my special possession. I'm going to commune with you. I'm going to be in your midst. I'm going to dwell with you. Unlike any other people on the face of the earth, I have selected you for special favor. I've delivered you. I've brought you out by a mighty arm. I've spoken to you. I've given you every reason to believe. And now I'm going to extend this grace and this mercy by coming and dwelling with you unlike I have with any other people ever in the history of the world. God actually calls Moses up to the top of the mountain to deliver this unbelievable news and and even the plans for this tabernacle. And yet right in the middle of this outpouring of favor, something tragic happens. You can pick up the story in Exodus 32. If you have your Bibles, you can flip back there, Exodus 32. Because right in the midst of all of this outpouring of grace and mercy and kindness from God, reprehensible, Shameful is the interlude. Because in the midst of all this, we read in Exodus 32, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they gathered themselves together to Aaron and said, Up, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up by the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graven tool and made a golden calf. 
And he said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Tragic. The very thing that God had told him not to do. On the very eve of all of this tremendous favor and kindness, they couldn't be faithful for such a short period of time. They turned and threw everything in God's face. In fact, we read down in verse 6, the next, uh, they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings to this idol and the people sat down to eat and rose up, eat and drink and rose up to play. The word play there is probably a euphemism for sexual immorality. So not only were they disregarding God and throwing every grace of his back in his face, but they were incredibly immoral. Abusing one another. Now the fallout of this is immediate. Because as Moses is up on the mountain, you can pick up the story in verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I might consume them in order to make a great nation of you. God's saying, look, let's just, let's just scrap the whole thing, and let's just start all over, and I'll start with you, Moses, and I'll just raise up a generation out of you. You'll be the new Abraham. God's whole tone has changed. Back in chapter 19, throughout most of the book of Exodus, it has been my people. You'll be my people. I'll be your God. I'll dwell in your midst. I'll, I'll, I'll go with you on the way. You'll be a special possession for me. But now, he's changed. He no longer is speaking of them as my people. He's speaking of them to Moses as your people. Your people have done this. They've turned aside. Well, Moses responds with the first of several intercessory prayers. Verse 11 says, He implored the Lord. Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them on the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I'll multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens. And all this land that I promise I will give to your offspring and they will inherit it forever. So he He pours out this prayer primarily based on the reputation of God. God, they're going to slander you. If this happens this way, they're going to say that you have evil intent, that you planned all of this to spite them. If you know the story, you know that Moses went down from the mountain with the tablets of the law that God had given them and he comes down and he confronts Israel. He smashes the tablets 
out of anger in front of them. He takes the golden calf, grinds it into powder, pours it into water, and makes all the people drink it as a a demonstration of the curse of what they had just done. And then the Lord commands him to raise up a few faithful souls from among the camp and sends them out and they slaughter 3,000 people, driving them through with, with swords, probably the prime instigators of this idolatry, But even that isn't enough because we're told at the very end of chapter 32, the last verse in 35, that he sends a plague that begins to run throughout the entire camp. And all this kind of startles us to think that God, who had demonstrated so much kindness, is now basically about to wipe them off the face of the earth so dramatically. Really, if it startles us, though, it just shows that we're more like those people, than we like to admit. Not seeing the sinfulness for what it is. Not seeing the disgrace to God's name for what it is. But Moses knew it. He understood it. And so he goes back a second time in verse 30 of chapter 32 to pray to, as he says, make atonement, to ask God to forgive, to cover, to cleanse them. Moses said to the people, you've sinned a great sin and now I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So he returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. Sounds very familiar. You may remember whenever we were looking at Romans chapter 9 verse 1, we reference this verse because it sounds so similar to Paul's own pleading in Romans 9.1, how he wished he could be accursed for the sake of his countrymen, his brethren. Here you have Moses with a heart like the Apostle Paul basically saying, I would do anything, anything that I could. I would even offer myself if you would have mercy on them. Well, that's the background, that's the context that enters us into chapter 33 from which Paul quotes. God gives a command in chapter 33 for Moses in verses 1 through 3, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring I will give it. I'll send an angel before you. I'll drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are stiff-necked people. So God relents and he says, okay, listen, you can go, you can have the land, I'll drive out all your enemies, I'll give you the land, but as for this whole special relationship of me dwelling in your midst, that's over. That's not going to happen because if I even went close to your camp, I would have to consume you because the scripture tells us that God is too holy to to lightly regard iniquity. He couldn't easily go into their camp without himself being defamed. For God, in other words, to so closely associate with such a wicked people would be to bring ill upon his own reputation. 
And so he says, I couldn't do that. I would have to consume you. Well, this is disturbing to Moses for a number of reasons. It's disturbing primarily because he understands exactly who he's dealing with. He understands that they could have all the land, that they could have all the material blessings, that they could have all the promises, they could have all that stuff, but he understands if they don't have God, that stuff's worthless. That stuff's worthless. In fact, you go down to verse 8. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, each to his own Uh, Each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone in the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak to Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. And thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And Moses turned again into the camp. His assistant Joshua, son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses, having that sort of background, Moses said to the Lord in verse 12, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you said, I know you by name, you found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I might know you in order to find favor in your sight. And consider, too, that this nation is your people. You know what Moses is saying here? He's saying, God, if you don't go with us, if you're not in our midst, we won't know your ways. We won't know how to obey you. And if we don't know how to obey you, we're just going to incur more of your judgment. We're just going to incur more of your wrath. So if you have said that I found favor in your sight, if you've said that I have been chosen by you, then please, on the basis of grace, please don't abandon me. Send someone with me to show me your ways. God answers in verse 14, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. So he's right back to the beginning. God has come full circle. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go with you and I'm going to give you the land. Tremendous grace. Tremendous mercy. And Moses understood it better than anyone. He understood what they were on the verge of losing and he understood what they had just regained. And he understood how completely incomprehensible it was that God would still do this. He knew he had no other tool by which to appeal to God but God's mercy. He threw it out there, but he probably had really no realistic expectation that God would answer. And yet God does answer. He answers in mercy. And the whole thing just leaves Moses perplexed. He says in verse 15, If your presence will not go with us, don't bring us up from here. For how will it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in you going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? I love that. 
I love that phrase. God, if you don't go with us, don't send us. I'd rather live in the desert than to be somewhere without you. I'd rather live in a hut. I'd rather live in a hole in the ground than a mansion without you. God, God responds. The Lord says to Moses in verse 17, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Unspeakable mercy, unspeakable grace to a stiff-necked, rebellious, obstinate, God-disrespecting, God-hating people. Well, Moses is overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed. He, he cannot wrap his mind around this. And it leads him to a second prayer, a second kind of prayer, I should say. Now, not so focused on God doing anything for the people, but a simple prayer in verse 18. Please, show me your glory. God, just show me your glory. And God answers him. I'll make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and I'll show mercy to whom I show mercy. That's, of course, the the passage that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 9 for us. And it gives us a tremendous amount of insight into this whole idea of election. Because when Moses asked to see the glory of God, he's really asking to see, if you will, Behind all of this action, behind all of this answered prayer, behind all that God is doing, behind all of his covenants, behind all this stuff, he's really asking, God, what makes you who you are? That you could be so kind and so gracious to so sinful a people. God... God answers him, I'll make all my goodness pass before you, I'll proclaim my name before you and be gracious to whom I'm gracious and merciful to whom I'm merciful. But, but that's a promise of what's to come. The fulfillment doesn't come until Exodus 34. And you can look down there in verse 6 of Exodus 34 and read, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, now, when you read that, you're, you should immediately ask a question. How can this be? How can God be, at one and the same time, gracious and merciful, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and at the same time, by no means, leaving the guilty unpunished? 
That makes no logical sense. For God to absolutely punish each person who's guilty and at the same time to forgive. How can He be both at the same time? How can He be so so amazingly compassionate and at the same time so amazingly faithful in judgment? Some people conclude that he can't. He can't be both at the same time. This can't be his nature. It is beyond our comprehension to imagine such a thing. And so people have tried to really untwist this dilemma in their minds. We begin to think that there, there, there's something missing. There's some peace that, that we haven't seen. And if we just can insert it, then we can undo the chaos of what God just said about himself. There must be some missing element that would allow God to make distinctions so that to one, He's going to show mercy and forgiveness, and to the other, He is by no means going to clear their guilt. And so we begin to speculate about what it is that God finds. In essence, we are in a a crusade to save God from the moral dilemma that we believe He's just placed Himself in. The moral dilemma that he stated in his character. But then you go back to Exodus thirty-three nineteen, and we remember what he just told Moses. I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. And I'll show mercy to whom I'll show mercy. You know, he just, just as easily could have stuck in there, I'll punish who I will punish. Because that's exactly what he says in Exodus 34, 9. What's he saying in all that? What's he revealing about himself? That in the end, he will, by divine prerogative, forgive whomever he chooses to forgive by his own choice. This is really a circular statement. That is, it is a an assertion that is depending on nothing outside of itself. Theologians call it the idem per per idem statement. It is true because it is true. It's an assertion that justifies itself. It's actually very similar, if you know the story a little bit, to God whenever he revealed himself to Moses. Remember back in Exodus chapter 3, Moses was up on the mountain, he saw a burning bush, And he goes and he says, look, if I'm going to go do this uh, work for you in Egypt and stand before Pharaoh and talk to your people, I I need to know who's sending me. Give me a name. Who can I tell them is the one who sent me? And how does God respond? I am that I am. That's who I am. I am that I am. That's also a circular statement. God exists because He exists. God is because He is. His existence is dependent on no other cause. He is the uncaused cause, as we sometimes say. The unmoved mover, as some people have said. That's not true for you and me. 
You and I all have a cause. We were all created. We came from something. We had no source in ourselves, if you will. But God's existence has no cause external to Himself that brought Him into existence. I am who I am. That is God's eternal name that states who He is. His existence has no cause external to Himself. And for Him to have a cause external to himself would mean that there is something greater than God and therefore he would not be God. God is, in other words, by definition, eternal. God is, in other words, by definition, without any prior cause. Because if there is a prior cause, then you, there is something sovereign over him. Well, in Exodus thirty-three nineteen, what's God saying to Moses? He's saying, my compassion and my graciousness has no cause external to myself. I am gracious to whom I'm gracious and I'm compassionate to whom I'm compassionate. It's circular because it all depends on him. It all has all of its reason inside of him. So God's saying, look, it's not because I looked ahead down the corridors of time and saw that Israel was going to be this or that. It's not because I, 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 you know, somehow anticipated someone's choice. It's not based on anything I learned or any kind of knowledge that I got from anything else. It is simply because of who I am. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. And it's absolutely dependent on nothing outside of myself. John Calvin in his Institutes gives this phenomenal quote that so encapsulates what is going on here in Exodus 33. He says this, quote, the, the forwardness of many advance beyond all due bounds on this point because reason does not appear why God should be merciful to one nation or one age and severe to both ages, to, to, excuse me, both to other ages and other nations. Hence the admirable counsel of God, whereby he has chosen some and reprobated others, has always been exposed to the slander of ungodly men. For unless they see the cause of the diversity... They do not hesitate to condemn the injustice of God in making this distinction between the two. God here checks this insanity and asserts his power, which men, or rather worms of the earth, would gladly deprive him of, that according to his own will, he exercises peculiar mercy towards whomever he pleases. God's will is superior to all causes. So as to be the reason of all reasons, the law of all laws, the rule of all rules. And surely, as long as men permit themselves to inquire into the secret counsels of God, there will be no bounds to their seditiousness. God, therefore, does not correct this insanity by disputing with it, but by the assertion of His right to be free in the dispensation of His grace. For in his sovereignty, he says that he will be merciful to whomsoever he will. Let us beware then, lest when he is kind, 
our eyes should be evil. Listen, we all deserve God's wrath and anger. Whether you realize it or not, you are right there in that crowd of Israelites. You have spurned God. You have turned against God. And you, if you receive His judgment and His wrath, you receive exactly what you deserve. But if God, in the course of His time, decides that He wants to show mercy because of some reason within Himself that we cannot ever fathom, if God decides for that reason to show kindness, who are we to speak evil of Him for showing kindness? His glory is His total freedom from anything outside of Himself. If God was bound, in other words, to things outside of Himself, He would not be so glorious. So His sovereign freedom, even in this matter, is essential to who He is and who He, uh, and, excuse me, and His name. Those of us who know this doctrine, who've come to celebrate this doctrine, know that. That this is the core of who He is. The core of His glory. His freedom to make the choice to give His mercy to whom He wants. John Piper says it this way, God is utterly free from the constraints of creation. The inclinations of His will move in directions that He alone determines. Whatever influences appear to change His will are influences which ultimately He has ordained. His choice to show mercy to one person and not to another is a choice that originates in the mystery of His sovereign will, not in the will of His creatures. In Exodus 33, 18 and 19 teaches us that this self-determining freedom of God is His name and His glory. If God ever surrendered the sovereignty of His freedom in dispensing His mercy, He would cease to be all glorious and He would no longer be the God of the Bible. End quote. Moses saw his glory. He said, God, show me your glory, and God showed it to him. God, God, gracious and merciful, having compassion on whom I'll have compassion, and yet at the same time, never clearing the guilty. Now, just in case you hear all that, and imagine, therefore, that God is using different standards of judgment, you're wrong. For God to say that He's merciful never means that He ever compromises His standard. You see, because God does punish the guilty. If you are standing before Him, He has a demand of punishment that you must meet. You meet it one of two ways. You meet it by standing under His wrath and suffering eternally in hell. Or you meet it by faith in Jesus Christ. See, God's not unjust. Every sin is punished. The fact is, though, for people who believe in Christ, those sins are punished in Christ. 
He bore our wrath. He took our shame. He did all of that so that God can have mercy on you. So that God can show forgiveness to you. So if you're here today and you hear all this stuff about God's mercy and compassion and you wonder how if, and, and, and if God will ever be merciful and compassionate to you, there is a way. And the way is Christ Jesus. The scripture says that if you confess Him as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Our challenge to you today is as we close out this service, So we think through these things, that you would examine your own heart, that you would know whether or not you still stand under the wrath of God or whether or not you have received his mercy. And if you are still in need, if you still have never met the Savior, he calls to you this morning. Believe in Jesus Christ. You do that just like Israel. He comes and takes up residence with you. And you know a fellowship with God as a man knows his friend. Well, let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Lord, we're grateful for these revelations. The disclosing not only of the plan of salvation, but the disclosing of your character in so much glory. I pray, Father, that we could meditate on it always, that it would inspire us to praise. And though we may not ever know the internal workings of your heart, you work according to your own will. Lord, we rejoice if you have shown us such favor to be recipients of your kindness. We pray for any who are here today who are seeking that kindness, who are looking for mercy. Would you work in their hearts today, open their eyes and their heart to receive you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.